Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today, my guest is Omar Mahmoud. Omar is our senior analyst on Somalia, and he's here today to talk with us about the escalating political crisis there. This is our last episode before we head out on a brief season break. We'll be back after August with season two of The Horn. So just a note to listeners that this conversation was recorded on the 30th of June. Omar, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Alan. Happy to be here. So Somalia's Electoral Commission just announced that upcoming elections will need to be postponed. And this was rejected by the political opposition to President Farmajo, which includes two former presidents of Somalia and the leaders of some of Somalia's fairly autonomous regional states. How serious is Somalia's political crisis right now? Yeah, so I think we're at a pretty serious moment. The National Independent Electoral Commission came out and said basically what everyone thought, that they weren't able to hold the elections within the current timeframes. Now, legally, that still needs to go to to Parliament, and and there's a a bit of a process there. But basically, they're saying that the way the electoral law is is designed, uh, that they can't hold it within within those timeframes. So at minimum, there would be a few months delay. They gave a, a few different options there. But I I think, you know, that underscores the wider point that there's very little consensus in Somalia right now over the elections. Uh, And it's not just the time frame, honestly, even the electoral model, despite what's on the books in the in the electoral legislation is still very much being questioned. These are supposed to be one person, one vote elections, which which Somalia has not done, uh, you know, in the past few decades. And so a lot of uh, the opposition is, is questioning whether that's even possible, whether the time is ripe to that. So I think there's a, there's a huge dispute. You know, there's the legal angle and, and pursuing kind of the laws on the books, but there's a political angle to that. And that's where you see the lack of consensus going on between the federal government and some of the member states with the political opposition in, in, in Mogadishu and elsewhere, uh, even within parliament, the lower house and the upper house have split on this issue and so when you don't have that consensus approach, uh, it presents a very worrying situation about where we're going forward. So I think it's in, we're in a very critical moment right now. Now, I think it's useful to take a, a bit of a deeper dive behind just the elections, but the overall political issues that are there in Somalia right now that have been brewing up as this election issue has has been nearing, um, well, first of all, in many ways, you have the deteriorating relations between these member states, as you mentioned, and President Farmajo's uh, federal government. Clearly, most of this has stemmed from President Farmajo's uh, push to strengthen the central government's control, which, of course, has been you know resisted by some of those member states, I think, understandably. So how has he done this uh, since the view, I think, has has long been that the Mogadishu government is is so weak? Yeah, so I think the, the starting point here is that there are definitely high tensions in Somalia's federal state building model. And, and so we often describe this as center periphery tensions. So between Mogadishu in the center and, and the periphery that some of the federal member states. Now, these definitely pre-exist Farmajo's administration. This has been inherent kind of in the, in the state building process um, over the past decade or so. But they've definitely worsened over the past few years. And, you know, part of it was when the, the Gulf cooperation crisis out broke and, and it was a lot of pressure was put on different Somali parties to take different sides. And so you saw the member states undertaking a different foreign policy approach than the government, really. 
in in but part of it has also been these accusations of interference uh, by the member states from the federal government and so i think where you can point to here is how disputed and contested regional elections have become and so those are the elections in some of the federal member states and so we've seen for example in southwest state in december 2018 a leading candidate get arrested uh, right before the election an election went off and and then uh, a candidate seen as close to mogadishu was elected uh, we've seen in galmadug where uh, there was a long process of state reconciliation that kind of ebbed and flowed but at the end it was really a military conflict that pushed out ahlusunawalt jama which allowed uh, a candidate seen as close to mogadishu also to take over and and so we've seen mogadishu basically try to replace the leadership of some of the member states with those that are more uh, sort of in line with their agenda. Now, where they failed on this is, is Puntland, which did have an election and a change of leadership, but not necessarily the candidate Mogadishu wanted, and Jubaland, where Ahmed Madobe is, is still uh, in power in Kismayo and has led to contestation around that area. And so it's no surprise that those are the two member states that are most opposed to Mogadishu right now as well. And, and so what Farmajo has done is, is you know, increase the vulnerability of, of this leadership when it comes to elections. And he's, his administration has been pretty clever, I think, at using some of the tools at their disposal, uh, enlisting some of, some of their allies uh, within this support. You know, the Ethiopia relationship is very important here, some other external partners. And, and so they've leveraged the, the tools available to them to in line with this agenda quite quite well i think now i think for us that the jubaland example is in some ways the most stark for some reasons including that this has a a regional dimension right now you know it used to be that kenya and ethiopia were often on the you know similar pages in somalia um, and that's increasingly untrue how has Ethiopia's approach to Somalia changed under Prime Minister Abiy, and how is how is that playing into this political climate within Somalia? Yeah, so essentially, uh, Abiy has has you know thrown his hat in the ring with with Farmajo, and, and this was in the idea that a, a stronger centralized uh, Somalia in some sort of senses would better be able to address some of some of its issues. Ethiopia also has some interests here in terms of uh, commercial interests, access to the sea, uh, ports development, th- those sorts of aspects. And so basically, Abe's seen uh, a partner in Farmajo and has, has developed a strong relationship between the two of them. Now, the problem is that this has affected some of Ethiopia's previous relationships and kind of turns on its head what Ethiopia's previous policy in, in Somalia was, which, you know, at some ways you could even describe as a dual track, engaging the federal government, but also engaging other entities within Somalia, given the, the power realities of what the federal government can project and, and where they are on the ground. You know, for security considerations, Ethiopia engaged other member states, other other uh, entities, political actors, clan uh, militias, and these sorts of things in, in Somalia as well. So it kind of turns that dynamic a little bit on its head. And given that the Farmajo administration has also been pursuing a bit of a stronger role in, in, for the federal government internally in Somalia, Ethiopia is increasingly being seen as a partner to that. Some of the political opposition has really picked up on this recently, complaining about non-AMISOM Ethiopian National Defense Forces presence in Somalia and some of their activities. 
And, and so basically you've seen these two agendas kind of coincide. So Abe's uh, relationship with Formaggio, but Formaggio uh, is sort of actions internally as well. And, and so that puts Ethiopia on that page and really uh, affects maybe some of their previous relationships. You know, I think Al-Sunnah wal Jama in Galmaduga is a good example. Ethiopia previously worked with that militia against Al-Shabaab. Uh, and now that militia basically just a few months ago was more or less militarily defeated by the Somali National Army and has kind of given up its political claims in Galmadug. And so you've seen them fall from grace a little bit as, as they've lost some external patronage. And, and so that ties into this dynamic of Ethiopia very much uh, centering itself around Farmajo. Now this plays out not only in terms of political divides, but also in terms of actual security divisions on the ground. Can you zero in a bit more on the standoff that's occurring in the ghetto region within Jubaland and how that's also playing regionally with Ethiopia on on more or less one side and Kenya on the other? Yeah, definitely. There, There's a strong regional component to what's happening in, in ghetto, and this will actually be the subject of some crisis group uh, research coming up soon. Uh, but basically, you know, ghetto shows the intersection of the federal member state uh, tensions, uh, center-periphery tensions, and the regional tensions in Somalia. And, and by that I mean really the, the starting point for the crisis of ghetto is more a contestation over control of, of Jubaland. Jubaland held this election last August in which Madobe uh, was re-elected to power, but Mogadishu never recognized it because they, they didn't really want that outcome. And so while that contestation played out a little bit in, in Lower Juba, when Madobe held his inauguration and kind of solidified his stance, this moved further north to Ghetto, which is the most northern region within Jubaland. And so that's where you saw the federal government kind of deploy troops and really take over the security apparatus, replace or co-opt some of the political leadership. And, and so you saw the federal government increase its, its influence in Ghetto in relation to this wider contest with Jubaland and in this center periphery dynamic. Now where the external relations come into play is, is of course ghetto and Jubaland as a whole border both Ethiopia and Kenya and so they have very much interest there, security interests as well. Previously Ethiopia and Kenya had, had been on the same page with regards to Jubaland more or less since uh, this Addis Ababa agreement in 2013 which saw the emergence of Jubaland. Um, but that's really changed over, over the past few years. And so now you see Ethiopia and Kenya falling on different sides. Kenya falling on uh, the side of Madobe. They still view him as a crucial security partner against in, in the battle against Al-Shabaab. And Ethiopia, as we mentioned, falling in line with Farmajo. And so given that uh, the contestation in Ghetto has erupted in, in, in some skirmishes on occasion, and, and particularly in uh, an area bordering Kenya, on, on the Kenya border area, and, and some spillover there, uh, there's, there's concerns that you know, continuing along these, these lines could really result in, in, in a greater uh, regional conflict or kind of sucking the region in. And I don't think that's where anyone wants to go, but there's always a risk of these local dynamics or a local skirmish uh, igniting something larger. And, and so that's where we've seen kind of this, this intersection in ghetto. This clearly affects Amazon as well. Ethiopia and Kenya are the two of the biggest troop-contributing countries to Amazon, and they're, they're both present in, in Jubaland. Amazon already had some command and control issues, 
And so their, their sort of cohesion of the organization is very much threatened when two of their major contributors aren't really on the same page as well. And, and so all of that's really to, to the benefit ultimately of an actor like Al-Shabaab. Yeah, and of course we'll end up talking about Al Shabab as we must and as we as we should. Um, let's go back to the election dispute, which is where we started this conversation before diving into some of these federal issues in Somalia. How are these disputes between President Farmacho's government and these other federal member states playing into this divide and dispute over the timing of the national elections and overlap with the national opposition to to President Farmacho? So it plays out quite strongly. And and so you see basically some of the member states very much opposed to what's going on in in Mogadishu. And and so by that, I mean particularly Puntland and also Jubaland. And those happen to be the two member states with the strongest adversarial relations to Mogadishu. Others, um, Hirshabele, Southwest and Galmadug, uh, in some of those, you know, Farmajo has been able to have allies in, in place there. And so you don't see the opposition coming out as strongly. And, and so that very much overlaps and really begs the question on the national election in terms of how you can really hold this process when some of the member states aren't on the same page. And it's not just that they're not on the same page, it's, it's that they're not really participating. You know, Puntland and Jubaland both at this point are saying that they're not participating in this process. There's supposed to be uh, a meeting next week uh, in, in Mogadishu bringing the member state leadership and, and Farmaggio's administration together. That's very much an overdue step. Part of the issue, though, is, is Puntland is still holding out on that. Um, they're, they're concerned that the lower house in parliament is still passing legislation to close some gaps in electoral law legislation, which they don't view favorably and they, they think should should stop uh, until they're able to meet and get on the same page there. Uh, so I think you very much have that frame overlapping within the election itself and where the the opposition in the upper house of parliament has also come in in, in more or less in favor of the Puntland Jubaland uh, position. So you kind of see those those uh, positions converging a little bit and, and really this push to get to some sort of meeting where, where everyone can discuss this and come to a consensus process and, and the failure to do so just further entrenches uh, the, the divisions we see here. So you have a strong national opposition, which, as we mentioned, includes two former presidents and also Jubaland and Puntland. What would a political crisis over the election look like in and could that escalate into something that looks like a security crisis and even conflict? Yeah, so I think we are at a pretty worrying point right now. So, you know, holding this process without having some sort of consensus agreement can be quite damaging. Uh, you know, one, it begs the question to what degree could there actually be a process uh, held, um, which I think is a valid question, given that the, the insistence on this one person, one vote model is, is still in place. Um, but, you, you know, you would have, if, if no consensus arrangement can be agreed upon, you, you could have a position where the, the federal government's ramming through a, a process that's not viewed as legitimate by many key stakeholders in, in Somalia at best, at, at worst, something that really could erupt in, in violent contestation. The, the opposition, the, the FNP in particular, uh, this, this grouping of, of political leaderships with two of the former uh, leaders of Somalia has been very stridently 
uh, in their rhetoric that they will not accept a single delay, a single day of delay from the current executive. Um, and, and so you see these hardline positions emerge, and you always see that happening, I think, in the lead up to electoral contests. But the, the stakes are, are pretty high in this one, and I think the rhetoric's been uh, a little bit higher as well. The current government has made a lot of adversaries internally in Somalia. Some of these see the election as their chance to, to get back, uh, especially given that there's uh, just so much in, in question about uh, this election itself. So I, you know, I, I do think we're at a, a worrying point where hopefully this, this meeting uh, goes off and, and, and Puntland is able to participate at some level, or you're able to get uh, the conversation started on, on consensus. And that's where I draw the parallel to 2016, where there was supposed to be a, a one-person, one-vote election in Somalia as well. It was deemed not possible for a number of reasons, including security. But at least the the membership and the leadership of the executive, the leadership of, of Somalia and the member states, they were having a series of meetings and consultations to come up with, with a new model. Um, and unfortunately, that hasn't really been happening this time to date yet. And so that's why this, this meeting will be so crucial. And how does the Gulf play into this? As we've discussed previously on the podcast, of course, the divide among Gulf countries has had what looks like a fairly destabilizing effect uh, in Somalia. And how is that playing out and how much of that is at play right now regarding these uh, elections? Yeah, definitely. So I, I think, uh, you know, as you mentioned, we, we clearly see the Gulf influence in Somalia and, and in the outbreak of the GCC crisis, we saw that have a, a destabilizing impact in, in Somalia. So that's quieted a little bit in terms of overt actions, I think, over, over the past year, but it's very much still under the surface. Um, and, and, and so we still see even tit-for-tat sort of uh, actions. You know, a good example of this is just recent. The Qatari ambassador visited Kismayo and, and oversaw some development projects. Recently, and just a few days later, you saw a shipment of COVID aid from the UAE as well. So that dynamic is still very much in play. It's just been a little bit under the surface. Now, where I would be concerned is the closer we get to the elections, the the more dramatic this might uh, start to appear, and and I think I say that because, you know, in past elections we have seen Gulf influence as a factor in in those processes, and you know this one I think the stakes are raised a little bit in particular because of the Gulf being more divided uh, in the wake of the GCC crisis, so it's much more important for either side to have a candidate that is is uh, you know amenable to them. And um, it, clearly with the current federal government sta technically staying neutral, but very much seen as close to Qatar as well. So, so I think the stakes are going to be raised for external involvement. And that's something, you know, we need to be cognizant of now because it can have quite a, a destabilizing impact on, on sort of exacerbating tensions that are already apparent within, within the um, uh, Somali system. Hmm. And I think what this discussion overall... <laughs> reemphasizes just the degree to which Somalia continues to be a, a, a playground sometimes of, of outside interests besides the Somalis themselves. As you mentioned earlier, of course, the obvious beneficiary of this political disarray seems to be al-Shabaab. Um, in this standoff in the ghetto region, you know, you have 
troops from Adobe's side and Mogadishu's side that instead of fighting Al-Shabaab are, are more or less in standoff against each other. Is Al-Shabaab right now overall growing stronger or weaker amid all of this? Yeah, well, I think there's always a bit of a ebb and flow to uh, Al-Shabaab, uh, but the status quo that's been present for the past couple of years more or less stands. And so they haven't lost a ton of territory. There's an ongoing offensive in, in Lower Chevalier region that uh, the government's in, in put a, quite a bit of effort in, in, in the international community as well to use kind of as a model, and they've been able to take back some territory there. But Al-Shabaab's heartland in, in middle Juba in particular remains, and it remains untouched. Uh, so, so we see that. We see at the same time Al-Shabaab's ability to inflict violence in areas it doesn't control, continues more or less unabated, um, you know, maybe complex attacks in Mogadishu a bit down this year, but Al-Shabaab also has some issues in, in where civilian casualties have erupted from those. Uh, but we've seen other other incidents which point just to, to their ability to infiltrate, particularly a series of worrying incidences in central and northern uh, Somalia as well. So the assassination of a couple governors in Puntland, for example. And at the same time, you see Al-Shabaab has really been able to deepen, I think, its shadow presence as well in areas that they don't directly control. And in, by this, I mean the, the reports we get about taxation in Mogadishu uh, from businesses, um, from, from people traveling out to Al-Shabaab areas uh, in order to settle disputes, to use the Al-Shabaab justice system rather than the government. So all of that points to the fact that I think Al-Shabaab is, is, is just as, as strong as it's always been, um, you know, maybe not in terms of controlling territory as it did 10 years ago, but over the past few years, I don't see it really um, weakening quite a bit. And, and rather, these political disputes and constant infighting serve to their benefit, as you mentioned. I think Ghetto's a great example of that because, for one, it shows how uh, security forces that are supposed to be uh, kind of facing off against al-Shabaab are rather facing off against each other. And, and so that you know, obviously distracts from the battle. Uh, but two, Al-Shabaab has been very good about inserting itself into Somali disputes. We see this at a, at a local clan level, either presenting themselves as kind of a uh, vehicle uh, as, as, as for revenge or a defender of a certain group and basically taking advantage of those who are marginalized or those who have grievances. And so the further political disputes go, the more opportunities they have to take advantage of that for recruitment purposes as well. And, and so, so I think you see those two factors that really, um, particularly in ghetto, bring this point home that Al-Shabaab can be a beneficiary of all of this political infighting. So ultimately, zooming out even further, it's hard to see an end to this conflict without eventual negotiations with al-Shabaab at some point. And does that appear any closer now than ever before? So I think that's an idea that is getting a bit more traction within Somalia. And there's probably a few reasons for that. Uh, you know, one, we do have the example of, of the U.S. And, and the Taliban of Afghanistan. So I think that example is, is quite striking. There's some frustration internally within Somalia. A lot of people asking the question about where is this going? Is this an endless war? Um, you know, to what degree uh, can the military and, and, and the path that's been chosen thus far really inflict some sort of massive change in, in the situation? 
Um, can they can they defeat al-Shabaab? I don't think people are talking about that anymore. They're talking about degrading al-Shabaab. And, and so what is the point of degrading it? Is it degrading it so the federal government can come in and be in a position of strength in any sort of negotiations? Or is it degrading it just because that's where military capacities uh, stand right now? Um, so, so I think all those questions are being asked. I'm not sure if we're any closer to dialogue right now, but asking these questions a little more does at least drive the conversation. And this is something Crisis Group will be focusing on in, in the next year or so as well, because I think we do need to tease out this this idea a little bit. You know, it's something that that's brought up often, but would be very, very complex and, and very difficult as well. And, and I think there's a lot of critics of this which would ask, what are you really going to achieve? And then that's a valid question. You know, who can you really engage in, in, in you know, to what degree are there actors uh, both in Somalia and regionally that would be opposed to this, that, that could be spoilers to this process? Um, so, so I think there, there's a lot of key questions that need to be asked here. But what I'd say is, you know, without exploring the option, um, you know, without really giving it its chance, I, you know, you, you don't really ever, you know, engage that idea that this battle can be pursued by some non-military means. If, if you try out negotiations and they fail, at least you've closed off that option. Um, without that, I think we're looking at, you know, the, the status quo right now, which is, you know, more or less an endless battle. You take back some territory, Al-Shabaab pops up elsewhere, um, given that they have such a shadow presence and, and such, you know, really embedded in parts of Somali society, it's very difficult to extricate themselves from that, particularly militarily. So, um, you know, the, the military is often part of, of the solution, but not the whole solution. And so this is kind of maybe a push to examine other parts of the solution. Now, we've covered a, a lot of ground here on Somalia. Um... But I think the big question is sort of, in many ways, always the the big question on Somalia in the past uh, few decades, which has been that it's, you know, it's been nearly 30 years since Somalia's last central government collapsed. Um, Is it clear whether Somalia and outside powers are making progress in rebuilding that Somali state? Um, Or is it even clear whether or not such a central government can or, or, or should be rebuilt soon? So the way, the way I look at it is on a long enough time horizon, I think you see definite progress in, in Somalia. And so by that, I mean, look at where we were five years ago, 10 years ago, the situation 15 years ago, obviously efforts both internally in Somalia, but, but particularly from the international community have focused on resurrecting a Somali state, at least a federal state, but with some centralized capacity. And, and there's indicators to suggest a deepening of that, uh, the formation of some of the federal member states, for example, or deepening governance at local councils and, and their establishment, you know, taking back and, and holding, which is really the key, some territory from al-Shabaab, and also steps uh, towards economic recovery. And, and so I think you do see those uh, steps and those indicators on, on when you zoom out. Now, the issue is more when you're dealing with this on, on a day-to-day and on a short term, it's harder to see that progress because I think the same issues keep popping up, the same core issues. So, you know, infighting uh, either between clans or, or political elite, uh, tensions with the center periphery tensions, which we've talked about uh, here, external interests as well, and, and kind of the dividing aspects they can have in, in the country. And obviously, you know, Al-Shabaab is still very much a present actor, still a viable actor, and really very much still a competitor to the federal government. 
So I, I think maybe the, the question really is, is, you know, yes, there's been progress, but has it been enough? And is this transitioning into something where uh, it's, it'll be a bit more sustainable in the long run with less uh, external involvement? Um, and, and unfortunately, on those questions, I think when, when you break it down that way, I think that's where efforts and expectations have fallen a little short. Um, you know, and for example, you can take the Amazon peacekeeping mission. So if that pulled out of Somalia today, where would uh, the federal government stand? Where would Somalia stand? And, and this comes up constantly in the context of Amazon's drawdown and the debate over that. And the consensus is always that the Somali security forces are not uh, primed to take over primary security responsibility. And so if you were asking that question in, in 2015 or 2010, and you were saying by 2020, we still wouldn't be there, I, I think that would be a little uh, disheartening. So so I think, yes, there, there is progress being made and, and there's a deepening of, of the central government and, and you know, we do see some positive indicators for that, but it's, but it's probably not happening at the pace or the level that uh, people have expected and that, that the timeline's envisioned. And unfortunately, some of the political infighting tends to set back that process. Uh, you know, it's never a linear projection, uh, but, uh, you know, it, it, it's sometimes, you know, a reversal in, in the short term of some of these dynamics. So I think that's what drives the point home that we're actually at a very crucial point with these next elections coming up and how the next electoral cycle plays out will very much determine the trajectory going forward. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm going to grab on to that there's been progress and try to end one of these podcasts on a somewhat positive note. Um, so thanks, Omar, for, for coming on and, and for that discussion. No, no problem, Alan. Happy to be here. And yes, I mean, I think there's we, we definitely see some glimmers of progress, but uh, we'll have to keep pushing forward. Thanks for listening to this episode and to our whole first season. We started this show as an experiment, and so we must end this first season with an extra grateful thank you to all of you who turned into us and convinced us that this was worth continuing. As we said at the top of the show, The Horn is heading out on a quick break, and we'll be back in September with another season of the show. Thank you so much for making this a success. We've heard from many of you, our listeners, throughout the past year, and we always want to hear more. So as we work on season two, we're keen to hear about what you like about the show and on what you're interested in hearing more from us. So we've put together a brief listener survey. The link is in the show notes for this episode. In the meantime, we have 22 episodes for you to go back and have a listen to. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Alan Boswell and follow Crisis Group for updates at Crisis Group. We'd also like to thank the larger Crisis Group team who supported the horn, Hugh Pope and Miranda Sunnix in Brussels, and in Nairobi, our Africa head, Comfort Arrow, and our horn lead, Marithi Mutiga, for their support, as well as Alyssa Jobson and Nicola Delani. And of course, thanks to all of our guests inside and outside Crisis Group who shared their time and insights with us. And as always, a special thanks to our producer, Mae Francis. We hope you keep well and keep safe.